Let me pray. Father God, just as you call your church to be the pillar and foundation of the truth, uh, we pray that your truth, the truth of your word, would be held high in our thinking here this evening. Uh, Lord, let your truth always be before us. Let, us be, let it be our guide. Let us submit to it and live by it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If we're not making beautiful people, and if we're not becoming an increasingly attractive community, Hamilton Road Presbyterian Church should shut up shop and call it a day. So should every other church that takes the name of Jesus Christ. If it's not enhancing the reputation of Jesus Christ wherever it is, it's not fit for purpose and it should close. That's a pretty big claim to make at the start of a service. I appreciate that, or at the start of a sermon. So by the time I finish this evening, I hope to have shown you from 1 Timothy and from the rest of God's word that these claims are entirely consistent with God's word. Let's come straight to our text. The movement of the letter so far has been pretty straightforward. In chapter 1, Paul wants Timothy to understand the gravity of the situation that he's facing in Ephesus. There are false teachers there, and Paul wants Timothy to understand that that's a serious problem. In chapters 2 and 3 so far, he instructs Timothy about how to bring the church back to focus on the gospel and on godly living. And in our teaching, in our reading this evening, beginning at 3.14, we see a new section which stands right at the center of the letter. It runs from 3.14 right through to the end of chapter 4. Within this pivotal section, all the major themes of the letter are laid out again. We're going to deal with this central section in a couple of sermons. So tonight, we go only so far as chapter 4, verse 5, the, the passage which we read. And we're going to think about two ideas, about the purpose of the church and then about keeping the church on purpose. So first of all, Paul teaches Timothy, the Ephesian church, and all who read this part of God's word, a clear vision for the purpose of the church. He says, verse 15, that the church of the living God is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Notice how the passage begins. Timothy, I'm hoping to come and see you. I want to come to Ephesus. But in case I don't make it, I want you to know how the church in Ephesus should behave. They've got to know who they are. They're God's household. They're God's family. And that's a, that's a picture well known to us, those of us who know the New Testament and its pictures of, of the church. One, one is that we're the, the family of God. They've got to know who they are, but they've also got to know what they are or what they're for or what their purpose in is. They are the pillar and foundation of the truth in Ephesus. Historians and archaeologists will tell us about an enormous temple to Diana in Ephesus. It had a huge roof, 
held up by a hundred columns or pillars, each of them 18 meters high. And perhaps Paul had that temple in mind. Perhaps he's deliberately choosing this architectural image because of what he knows of the city he's writing to. The roof of that temple in Ephesus, it won't stand without foundations and pillars to hold this vast building up. So Paul uses this surprising illustration to give give the church a, a vital role in God's purposes. The church, God's household, exists to provide strength and visibility to the truth. Without godly living in the church, the truth will be discredited. Its visibility will fade away from view. Now, now we've got to be a bit careful here. The truth doesn't come from the church. The the truth belongs to God and, and, and is God's. The gospel belongs to God. But according to Paul, the church has a vital role to uphold that truth and to display it in Ephesus. God's people do that by how they live and how they behave. As you read 1 Timothy and many other of Paul's letters, you'll you'll begin to see a pattern. Paul cares about the reputation that the church has in its local community. And currently the reputation in Ephesus isn't good. That's, that's why Paul's writing this letter. The, the church is full of arguments and controversies. The church is characterized by a lack of care. We'll see that in the later chapters. And there, there are some Christians who are proving to be lazy employees. Those are the particular problems which Paul addresses in this letter to Ephesus. Whenever churches and church members behave like this, they not only don't hold up the gospel, they, they actually hinder the work of the gospel. Maybe you've seen that. Maybe you know people who won't commit their lives to Jesus Christ because of Christians, particular Christians or bodies of Christians. So as I've already said, any church that takes the name of Jesus Christ, if it's not enhancing God's reputation, it's not fit for purpose. It needs to come back to its purpose, or it would be better if it closed up shop. Paul's whole purpose then in writing this letter is to remind Timothy of the church's purpose in Ephesus and to get the church back onto that purpose. That's why chapter 315 functions as the very center of this letter. That's why we've chosen it as the title for our series. It's the key to understanding why Paul needs to act and what he wants to see happen. Everything else in this letter, whether it relates to behavior in church services, chapter 2, or the appointment of leaders, chapter 3, or caring for church members, chapter 5, We can read all of it in the light of this verse. Paul wants everything to be done in a godly way because the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. I'll come back to that theme before I finish, but let's let's continue in our passage. I'm going to guess that verses 14 and 15 weren't too difficult to, to grasp. 
things get a bit more difficult when we get to verse 16. It's hard to know what Paul's even talking about here. What is this mystery that springs from true godliness? Or sorry, the mystery from which true godliness springs. Well, the first thing we need to recognize is that when Paul uses the word mystery, he uses it in a different way than you and I do. When Paul talks about a mystery in any of his letters, he's usually referring to anything that was for a time hidden that is now revealed. So, for example, in Ephesians 3, the mystery of Christ that has now been revealed is that Gentiles as well as Jews can now be members together in the family of God. That, that's the mystery that he's talking about there. Here in 1 Timothy 3, the mystery which godly living reveals is the truth that's been mentioned in verse 15. But what, what's the truth that he's talking about? Well, again, I need to tell you that when Paul uses that phrase, the truth, he often and nearly always uses it as a shorthand for the gospel, the truth of the gospel. His point here in verse 16 is that when believers live godly lives, they put on display for others the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. In the remainder of the verse, he goes on to retell that gospel in a very poetic form. Lots of commentators think that he's maybe quoting a hymn, an early hymn from the church. We, we can't be sure of that, but it's certainly possible. The passage certainly has the commentators stumped in terms of how we should interpret it. In his commentary, my New Testament professor, Gordon Fee, says, on the structure, the meaning of a couple of the lines, the meaning of the whole, there has been considerable debate. In view of so many difficulties and disagreements, one offers an interpretation with some reservation. If Gordon Fee can't be sure what it means, I have no chance. So what I offer, I offer with reservations. After reading a, a little bit, I'm taking my lead at this point from Angus McClay, whose commentary I found helpful again on this passage. I think we can divide this uh, text into three sets of couplets. So the way it's uh, presented in your Bible is really helpful. So lines one, three, and five we read together, and they refer to Christ's bodily, first of all, his bodily appearance, which was seen and which was believed in the world. In other words, Jesus really came in bodily form into the physical world. Theologians might group those, those ideas under what we call the incarnation or the enfleshment of Jesus, a physical Jesus living in a physical world. This truth is key to biblical Christianity. We'll see in a moment that a gospel which affirms the created order is an important corrective here to, to the problems in the church in Ephesus, the asceticism of the false teachers. The true gospel has no room for a conflict between body and soul. Jesus Christ came fully in the flesh. He lived in the world and was observed. And then if you look at the other lines, verses 2, 4, and 6, the common factor is that Jesus Christ is lifted up for all to see. In verse 2, the resurrection reveals him lifted from the grave and publicly vindicated by the Spirit. 
Verse 4, the preaching of the gospel among the nations. That's a a lifting up of the name of Christ for all the peoples to hear of him. Verse 6, him being taken up to glory is the ultimate sign and demonstration of his being exalted. So taken together, the Spirit, the Church, and the Father all work together to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. Theologians might group all that together and call it glorification. So, the gospel of verse 16 is of a Christ who came down and took on flesh, who's been raised and glorified. Paul longs for a church that's earthed in this full gospel. A a church that understands that Christ lived in this world fully before he was raised and seated at his Father's throne in heaven. With that understanding, I think we can see that chapter 3, verse 16, reinforces what's been taught in 3.15 with its focus on a godly living that raises the gospel. And in the same way, it prepares a a way for a rebuke of the false teachers in the early verses of chapter 4. They had been endorsing a behavior that obscured this true gospel. Let me pause there for a moment. I want to show you for a second that what Paul teaches here in chapter 3, verse 15, fits seamlessly with the teaching of the whole of Scripture. His teaching about the purpose of the church in Ephesus resonates with everything that the Bible teaches about the purpose of God's people. Maybe you remember and maybe you don't, but I'll remind you, don't worry. What we learned from the book of Deuteronomy just over a year ago in our morning services, Moses told the people, chapter 4, as he gave the people God's law, he said to them, see, I've told you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them in the way the Lord our God is near us when we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? Israel was to live a life that was attractive to the nations around them. This goes right back to the beginning of God's people. Perhaps you were here in this sanctuary on the weekday mornings of Bangor Worldwide this year as Chris Wright taught from Isaiah, and he highlighted some of the themes there. Isaiah 60 Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. God wants his people to draw people to him like moths to a flame. 
all of a sudden, Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount takes on its full biblical context. When he says, you are the light of the world, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. He's not saying anything new. He's just giving us Isaiah. He's making sure that his disciples, the new people of God, understand that they now carry this purpose of the people of God. I could say more. I'd love to say more. But we need to come back to our passage. After reminding us what the purpose of the church is, Paul commands Timothy to go after the false teaching that's undermining the church in its purpose in Ephesus. He wants Timothy to keep the church on purpose. There's a, a connecting word in the Greek text which hasn't been translated in the NIV. The ESV translates it as now, so it begins chapter 4 with the word now, but it would be even better translated however. Paul's reminded us of the truth in the closing verses of chapter 3. However, he says in the opening verses of chapter 4, Timothy, there are dangers posed by these false teachers. Maybe the easiest way to deal with these opening verses of chapter 4 is to ask some pretty straightforward questions of the text. What's the danger? The danger, verse 1, is that some would abandon the faith. We've already met two guys who've abandoned the faith at the end of chapter 1. Hymenaeus and Alexander, whose faith has been shipwrecked. But this is a constant concern of, of Paul's in this whole letter to Timothy. He mentions it four times. Chapter 1, verse 6, 5, verse 15, 6, 10, and 6, 21. People are losing their faith. Because of the focus on the law of these false teachers, people are abandoning a straightforward faith in Jesus Christ. If we have teaching, preaching, that isn't the gospel by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, then you have abandoned ship. People are losing their faith. So that's the problem. When will this happen? The, the Spirit says, clearly says, that in latter times, later times, people will abandon the faith. What are the later times that Paul's talking about? This isn't language that we easily use, but it actually means something quite simple. Anything between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus is the later times. We're living in the later times. So Timothy shouldn't be surprised at all that these things are happening in Ephesus. Hard to know what Paul means when he says the Spirit clearly says. Did the Spirit say something to him? It's possible. Bear in mind what we said when we introduced this letter. In his farewell to the Ephesian elders recorded for us in Acts 20, Paul foretold a time when savage wolves would come in among you and men would arise to distort the truth in order to draw disciples after them. Paul talked about a time when false teachers would be wreaking havoc in Ephesus. 
the Spirit somehow had given him some insight into that. It's happening now in these later times. How will it happen? This sort of thing occurs because of the word, the work of Satan. In this letter, Paul constantly describes the reality of the work of Satan. Chapter 3, verse 7, he warns us of the devil's trap. Chapter 5, verse 15, he talks of those who have already turned away to follow Satan. Paul is in no doubt that Satan is at work here. That he wants to derail people from the truth of the gospel. And that's why Paul encourages Timothy to fight the good fight, chapter 1 and chapter 6. Because there's a real spiritual battle here. These false teachers, they've followed deceiving spirits and they've become hypocritical liars. Paul uses an interesting phrase. He says that their consciences have been seared. Maybe you wondered what that meant. What does it mean? Well, well, let's, let's really stick with the metaphor for a second. When your skin is seared, so if I, if I touch my hand, I think I have done this at times in the past, grab a, a red-hot poker, the, that skin, the, the nerve endings on that skin are damaged and you lose your sense of feeling. You lose your sensitivity. These false teachers, they're no longer sensitive to what is the truth of the gospel and to what is a lie from Satan. A Bible teacher must remain sensitive to the word and the spirit of God. What were they teaching? These false teachers were forbidding people to marry and forbidding certain kinds of food. Remember what we said a moment ago about the, the physical and the spiritual, the incarnate Christ and the glorified Christ. We said we've got to hold these two together. These false teachers are saying, forget about the physical. Forget about marriage and sex. Forget about food. We have rules to control how you engage with all those sorts of things. They aren't things that you can just receive and enjoy. This kind of legalism was, was always a danger in, in Old Testament Judaism. It was a, a danger in the early church. I expect that it's a, a reality in many other religions. You see, there's a view that says everything in this world, everything physical, is inferior to the things of another world, the things that are spiritual. We, we call that view dualism. It's a way of thinking that denies ultimately the goodness of God's creation. Why were the fall? I'm still asking questions of this text. Why were they teaching like that? We don't have the answer in our text, so at this point we should proceed carefully. It seems to me, though, we shouldn't be too quick to write off these false teachers in Ephesus. If we do that too quickly, if we make them the baddies, and, and if we're very clear that we would never fall into any of the same traps, we miss the opportunity to learn something. So let's, let's not do that. 
let's be a little bit sympathetic. Why might they be teaching the way they're teaching this, this legalism and the dualism that comes with it? Could it be that they're teaching legalism to prevent or to protect the church from a hostile, ungodly culture? There's a lot of bad stuff out there in the world, so let's use rules to build a wall to keep us good people safe in here. Have you ever seen that before? Do you ever imagine we might be drawn to that these days? There's a sense in which that kind of approach would be entirely understandable, but here's the problem. It's not biblical. You see, here's what happens. If I use rules to build a wall to keep me and people like me in here, that doesn't keep sin out. Because sin's right in here. Rules don't make people holy. Legalism doesn't make people beautiful. Only the gospel transforming our hearts can do that. Another reason why people love uh, rules and, and particular forms of behavior is that you can use them as a marker. You can create goodies and baddies. People who are in and people who aren't. They serve as a badge of our holiness. Super spirituality can, at first glance, appear impressive, but it's terribly destructive of the church. I hadn't really, as I've been reading Paul's epistles recently, I'm seeing this all over the place how Paul has to challenge. It's really surprising. He has to go after the people who seem most spiritual. Why is that? It's because it destroys communities. Super spirituality destroys churches. How so? Well, here's how. Super spirituality divides Christian from Christian because some of us are better than some others. There's two levels of us in here. It also divides Christians from the world because it makes Christians into weird people who have increasingly nothing in common with normal people who are just getting on with living their everyday lives. And this is quite frightening. Super spirituality can separate us from God because God is our creator. He's given us endless good gifts in this world. And, and one of the ways in which he wants to, us to bless us is for us to, to enjoy those. If we are people who aren't fully engaged in this beautiful physical world, we're missing out on what our creator God has given us. Folks, in a sense, those first three and a half verses of chapter four tell us of what the problem is with the false teaching. In the second half of, of verse 3, Paul begins to point us towards the solution. This is what Timothy will need to teach if he's to bring the church in Ephesus back to the truth. Look with me. Paul takes us back to the creation account. Folks, I, I wonder if in my journey through Christian life, we forgot the creation account too readily. We, we quite quickly told a story that began in Genesis 3 
with, with the fall, crucial as it is, but we forgot to tell the story of Genesis 1 and 2. Paul takes us to Genesis 1 and 2. He reminds us that everything God created is good. So whenever God gives us good gifts in his creation, the correct response is not to reject them and to say, you know, I could be more spiritual if I wasn't engaging in all these earthly things. No, we don't reject them. We receive them with thanksgiving. Every parent knows that whenever a a child is given a gift for their birthday, the best response is to receive it with joy and say thank you. That's That's how we should live in this created world, in this physical life. We, we live with gratitude and thanksgiving to God. Paul closes his paragraph, this paragraph about, about going off the rail with rules and traditions by calling us back to God's word, verse 5. That's where we'll find the guidance which we need. It's God's word that sets things apart as pleasing to him. It's no surprise then that the job of a church leader is to to preach and to teach God's word clearly. Let's take a step back and notice what's happened in these verses. Quite surprising. Paul is making a big deal of countering false teaching, but he does so by preaching about creation. That's interesting. Maybe we imagine that the only kind of false teaching that that matters, the only kind of false teaching that would need to be refuted is false teaching about salvation. The kind of thing that the reformers did when they called the church of their day back to a salvation by grace through faith. But here, Paul's challenging a false teaching about creation. Folks, we need to be aware of any version of Christianity that promotes this dualism that we have talked about here this evening, that divides body and soul, earth and heaven, creation and redemption. The God who is our Savior is, first of all, our Creator. It's our Creator who is our Redeemer. We mustn't allow anyone to split these truths apart. We must be on our guard, as Paul so often is, against those who promote super spirituality in our churches. Because they don't help us to live godly lives before our neighbors. The kind of lives that serve as a a pillar and a foundation of the truth. Tonight, as we've been in our text, we have learned about the purpose of the church and how Paul wants Timothy to keep the church on purpose. At the beginning of my sermon, I made a a very stark claim. I said that if a church isn't enhancing God's reputation where it is, it's not fit for purpose and it should close. I want to spend the last few moments trying to substantiate that claim from God's word. I'm going to ask you to to move with me from 1 Timothy 
to Jeremiah 13. You'll find that on page 771. Jeremiah 13. Jeremiah is one of the major prophets. He's charged with bringing God's word to God's people in Jerusalem and Judah. He does, if you know Jeremiah's prophecy, one of his distinctives is he seems to be into drama. He's asked by God to act out various parts of his prophecy, and that's what we get here in chapter 13, one of Jeremiah's dramatic enactments. Very, very powerful. Jeremiah 13, let's read those first few verses. This is what the Lord said to me. Go and buy a linen belt and put it round your waist, but do not let it touch water. So I bought a belt, as the Lord directed, and put it around my waist. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the belt you bought and are wearing around your waist and go now to Perith and hide it there in a crevice in the rocks. So I went and hid it at Perith, as the Lord told me. Many days later, the Lord said to me, go now to Perth and get the belt I told you to hide there. So I went to Perth, dug up the belt and took it from the place where I'd hidden it. But now it was ruined and completely useless. Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord says. In the same way, I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. These wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who follow the stubbornness of their hearts and go after other gods to serve and worship them, will be like this belt, completely useless. For as a belt is bound round the waist, so I bound all the people of Israel and all the people of Judah to me, declares the Lord, to be my people for my renown and praise and honor, but they have not listened. Did you get that? So God tells Jeremiah to buy some sort of a linen belt. I'm trying to picture that. I don't really know. I don't wear linen belts, but I'm thinking, like, is it like a cummerbund? You know, one of those things that men wear sometimes in a, in a wedding party or when they're going to a formal, one of those things you wear around your waist. So I'm picturing one of those, and God says to Jeremiah, buy one of those and put it on. So he does what he's told. He buys the belt, and the belt looks good. That's why he's wearing it. It makes Jeremiah look good. And then God's instructions to Jeremiah start to get a bit weird. God tells him to bury the belt if you research Perth, you'll discover it's beside a river. So again, Jeremiah does what he's told. Months later, God tells him, go, go and dig up that. Do you remember that belt? Go and dig it up. See what it's like. And he does what God asks him. Now, think about it. What's he going to find when he digs it up? You've got a linen, piece of linen, and you've put it in damp ground beside a river. And you've left it there for a considerable time. What's that belt like? It's moldy. It's full of mildew. To use an Ulster word, it's, it's minging. It is, isn't it? It's good for nothing. 
It's ruined. It's a weird kind of a drama, and we're not really sure what the point of it is until we get to verses 8 to 10, and God explains why he's had Jeremiah act out this drama. He said, in the same way that this belt was ruined, I'm going to ruin Jerusalem and the people of Judah. They haven't listened to me. They've gone their own way. They've found other gods more to their liking. They've worshipped them instead. Because of all this, they've become useless. They're they're as useless as that thing you're holding in your hand. They're entirely unfit for purpose. One of our great strengths in Ulster is our turn of phrase and our language. We have a great expression about clothes that aren't quite right. I wouldn't be seen dead in that. And that's what God's saying about the church of Jeremiah's day. You're gross, you're minging, and honestly, I wouldn't be seen dead in that. I don't want to be associated with you. I don't want my reputation in this world in any way to depend on you. You're done. A moldy, useless piece of cloth. That's what God sees when he looks at huge swathes of his church. And it's a pretty demoralizing picture. But there's something quite staggering tucked away in the final verse of this passage. When I first saw it, it gripped my heart. And I've never lost it since. Have a look. Because now we get to see what God's heart for his people is. What is his purpose for his people? What does he want the church to be? Look at what he says. For as a belt is bound round the waist, so I bound all the people of Israel and all the people of Judah to me. To be my people for my renown and praise and honor. It's an incredible picture. There are lots of parts of the Bible where we're told that we must clothe ourselves in Christ or in his righteousness, and they're beautiful images. But that's not this image. This is about God being clothed in us. He says, I wanted to wear you for my glory and my honor, and my renown. I want you to make me look good. It's staggering. Friends, it's true then that a church that isn't enhancing God's reputation where it is is not fit for purpose, and it should close. But it's also true that when the church begins to live the godly lives that Paul's talking about, when we shine in the way that Isaiah calls us to, when we take Jesus at his word and we are the light of the world, we can be what we were always made to be, the pillar and foundation of the truth here in Bangor. 
That's our calling. That's the purpose of the church. And we have absolutely no chance unless he does it in us. Let's pray. Father God, we, we can be, sometimes we can go through life wondering what, what is my purpose, what's my calling, and, and your word tells us time and time and time again what our purpose and our calling is. Our calling is to love you, to walk in your ways, and to show your beauty to a watching world, to be a, a pillar and a foundation of the truth in this city where you've put us. Lord, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts that you have given us such a wonderful calling. We're staggered at your grace that sinful and weak as we are, you still call us to this kind of a purpose. But Lord, as soon as we're as soon as we're grateful, as soon as we're touched by your kindness, we realize that we're simply not able. Lord, we cannot show your beauty to a watching world because we are not beautiful. And so we ask again that you'd pour out your spirit on us. We ask again that you would grow the fruit of the Spirit in us. And we ask again that you would make us people who look more like Jesus. Lord, as you invite us to clothe ourselves in Christ, we long for the day when one day you'd be glad to clothe yourself in us. Lord, we pray it in your name and for your glory. Amen.